welcome to the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, the podcast that follows three integral recovery practitioners on the journey of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. Join us and our trailblazing guests as we apply the principles of integral recovery, daily practice, and the aqua map to transcend limitations, accelerate growth, and heal ourselves and hopefully the world. And now here are John Dupuy, Dr. Bob Weathers, and I'm Doug Prater with the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, episode 24, Finding Hope in Recovery. The Integral Journey of Doug Prater. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is the Journey of Integral Recovery, and we are three of your fellow travelers, uh, John Dupuy, Doug Prater, and Dr. Bob Weathers. <laughs> and this is episode 24, my producer has told me, so I hope that's right. And so we roll it along. And if you get, you know, this is your first time, go back and listen to the, all the other stuff. It's all foundational. It's all fun, and I think it's all inspiring and very helpful. So today... We're going to do something that's, uh, well, it's rather special. And uh, Doug is going to talk about his journey of integral recovery and his story. So um, I've, I've heard bits of it, and it's, you know, I was quite moved. And that's, well, you know, how we became uh, – we became friends and then we became colleagues. We started working together. You sent me, I can't even remember what the, what the email was about, but I got this email. We get a lot of emails. I wake people asking stuff. There was this brilliant email. It was really long. If I remember, and it was like, like all these great questions. And I was like, what is the easy way out? Oh, a Skype call. (laughs) (laughs) I want to have to write, you know, like, like a 25 page response to this thing. And so, we started talking and we found we had all these things going on. And so then we just started talking. And then every week we said, this is too cool to stop. And, and finally we, we, things were obvious that we needed some help at, at I awake. And uh, I started thinking, okay, I got to send out, you know, these skill sets to our list and all this stuff. And then I'm ding, done. Doink. And anyway, and so one thing involved into another and he's become a, a friend and a colleague, both in in, in the the iWake technology work and, of course, the, the integral recovery work too. So, uh, yeah, it's wonderful. And for me, as an older guy, when I see these young, brilliant people, mm-hmm. you know, uh, showing up on the planet, it's so moving. You know, because sometimes you hear these cries of like, "Well, they weren't like it when I was a kid." You know, they're just different now. You know, they are different. Thank God, and they're better. You know, so it it, it makes me trust and and honor evolution, and it gives me hope that uh, we're handing off to, to some extraordinary people. And Doug, to me, you you represent that in a big way. So. Amen to that, <clears throat> John. That's that's. Very kind, and I sure as hell didn't start there. It has been an ongoing journey of of transformation for me, and it very much still is. Um, thank you for the kind words, and both of you for very sincere, you know, yeah. the opportunity to show up here and do this podcast every week, which has become an important part of, of that continued evolution and growth. Um, John, you mentioned having heard parts of my story and Bob, you have heard parts of my story. These things kind of come up in conversations. Our, our viewers and listeners too probably know little bits and pieces that they have put together, but this really is the first time that I've ever told my whole story in any, any complete way to anyone. So I'm certain there will be things that I wish I had said better or things that I, you know, will realize later that I had left out or, could have expressed differently, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to do it. That's part of the practice here is just leaning in and doing it anyway and accepting 
those imperfections and evolutions as we move forward. It's all just a work in progress with this. Yeah, it's an honor to sit with you right now. So I have been, I've been uh, clean and sober for a little over four years now and age 35. Uh, I first started using at a fairly young age, I think a fairly common age. I was about 13, 14 years old, middle school or thereabouts. Um, as, as a child, I was a very bright kid and, you know, very, very stereotypically nerdy and interested in all these kind of wonderful things and top of my class, et cetera, which resulted in uh, a lot of bullying and a lot of dislike at that age. Um, I was very disconnected from my peer group from a very young age. People would, for example, go outside to recess to throw the football around. And I was, you know, teacher, can I stay inside during recess to do stuff on the computer? I've mentioned into computers and was, you know, working with the early Macintoshes back in the day. And the bullying got intense very intense, very quickly around the same time that I had started to discover a bit of a rebellious streak. My intellectual curiosity had led me to really start questioning things, questioning authority, rejecting the status quo, et cetera, as is common to teenagers, as I understand. But, um, you know, part of that was kind of leaning into that rebellious counterculture, which already had some drugs in them. And when I got there, the God, the bullying continued because at that point there was there were other groups of people that just did not like me, did not want to be with me. But using, starting with marijuana, took my brain to a different place where I didn't have to think about that anymore. Hey, Doug, what was going on at the home front during all this when you're growing up? This this gets interesting because I should say that everyone makes mistakes, and there were there were a lot of things on the home front that we've all grown and we've all changed and we've all matured. And my family and I are making some pretty good reparations these days as part of not only my own growth and healing, but theirs too. They realized that there were things that could have been done differently and mistakes and you do the best you can with what you have and what you think at the time. And sometimes you do what you think is right for a person that is actually not the right thing. And uh, anyway, um, there was, some tension at, at my family and, you know, and uh, it, it further kind of pushed me down this rabbit hole of I needed some way to escape all that and did not feel accepted by any of my peers or at home and had no one to talk to and nowhere to go and no place to be. So I escaped into this world of of substances. Um, Doug, did you have a best friend or somebody you know, hung out with? Well, I had a, had a couple different groups of best friends. There were, there were, there was one when I was kind of younger and then I started leaning into another crowd around the time that I started using. But like one best friend, I mean, somebody, you know, that you kind of helped you get through all this period. It shifted. I had, I had a couple of best friends when I was younger and then, then it shifted. Um, there, there was no kind of open dialogue about any of this at any of that time. We were just being kids and doing the best we could. Um, yeah, I, I leaned into all that, and I leaned into creative stuff, writing and music and all that, and I 
did the best I could to deal with what I was facing through my music, through playing guitar, through writing songs, uh, and taking care of things in those sorts of healthy ways. Um, you know, I was, I was getting high pretty much daily up to the point where I was about 16 and the band that I was playing in, I was singing and playing guitar and writing songs for, uh, was, you know, really starting to come together as much as a, a high school band does. I mean, we were <laughs> in retrospect, but, but it was a lot of fun and we cared about it a lot at the time. And, um, my drummer who was a pretty good friend and a pretty good influence on me on the whole, uh, told me that I couldn't keep getting high if I wanted to stay in the band. I cared more about the band than I did about using at that time. And so, you know, I stopped smoking pot at that time. Of course, alcohol was still okay. And so I discovered that, which opened up a whole nother, whole nother thing. The bullying was bad. It's uh, black eyes and bruises and, you know, slammed into lockers and kids following me home from school and throwing rocks at my head and, you know, getting, getting backed up to the edge of this Creek. One day they stole my backpack and threw it books and all down the storm drain into the sewer. Uh, I don't know. I, I dealt with it the only way I could. So when I was at the summer between my sophomore and junior year of high school, my family moved to Texas. Uh, I didn't mention yet that this time that I was growing up, I was living, born and raised in Littleton, Colorado, uh, was a junior in high school in 1999 when some things reacting to that same bullying that I had experienced, some people that I knew and had classes with, uh, well, they, they reacted badly and they went and shot up Columbine High School. Uh, which was right over my next door neighbor's back fence and we were in the parking lot. It was, you know, my home and my people. And I was not there, thank God, that day. But I lost a lot of friends and there was a lot of shit there. Uh, I, I wasn't there, thank God. But it was still really, really hard. Um, and harder still for the friends of mine who were, who were there with it, uh, dealt with it the best I could. Moving, moving was one of the best things that ever happened to me, not only for that, but because for the first time I was in a different place. I was in a high school where it was okay to be smart. It was cool to be smart. And, you know, I was in the marching band and in the theater program and really could explore all my wonderful nerdy passions in a way that, was encouraged there and that was great, but there were still so many entrenched negative self beliefs uh, and, and things at home were still rough um, that, that I couldn't escape some of those old patterns, those old habits, those old thoughts. And I still would continue to drink on the weekends, you know, managing my life. Okay. But never quite noticing that I was always the one drinking much more heavily than anybody this, else. You were drinking with. socially or were you drinking a lot? I was, I was mostly socially at this time, although I would uh, still, you know, sneak a little bit and have some 
by myself at night occasionally on the weekends. I was just because I wanted the experience. It wasn't, I wasn't doing it as a social thing. I was doing it because I liked it. It, it yeah. always was an escape for me, a way to get out of my head and escape the, the demons, the thoughts, the emotions, the stuff that I could not handle. Went off to college and studied music, music production, sound recording technology, which was fantastic. Uh, but college too was a place where, you know, drinking was part of the culture and especially at Texas state where I went to school, Southwest Texas at the time was kind of known as a party school. And boy, did I lean into that? I, I, again, it, it got pretty heavy, pretty fast. And I somehow, somehow managed to keep it together for a while until eventually things my, my last semester, which I had to repeat a couple times, I just crashed. I couldn't do it anymore. Um, that, that last semester of school, I was taking an extended load of very difficult classes while simultaneously trying to do my senior project, working 30 hours a week at my retail job and taking care of a, a girlfriend who was struggling with severe depression and also trying to run this fledgling record label that myself and a couple of students had put together. Um, it was all just too much. I couldn't handle it. And I just kind of fell apart. I died. My, I had turned 21. I was able to procure my own supply of booze at this point. And, oh, God, just leaned into it. I started having blackouts my very first weekend that I was there at university and, and kept doing it. My, by my sophomore year, I'm sitting there Googling, am I a problem drinker or an alcoholic and trying to lean into that difference. I, around that same time, first discovered meditation, but didn't, was not able to stick with it in any serious way. I was exercising, but not able to stick with it in any serious way for a long period of time. I just somehow managed to remain mostly functional there for a while until suddenly I wasn't and the blackouts, you know, were more and more frequent. And, uh, my girlfriend who was finally starting to, to come out of her depression started getting really concerned about my behavior as we're getting ready to graduate and starting to plan a life together. And she's going, you can't do this. You can't stay sober. And I, couldn't quit. I went to my first AA meeting around age 22 and realized that I had a problem and had to quit at that time. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't stay stopped. I'd be sober for a couple of weeks, a month, month and a half, two, maybe, and then have a relapse and start the whole thing over again. And it became this cycle of knowing things were bad and doing okay for a while and then relapsing. And Doug, Doug, when you relapsed, you didn't just like ease your way into it. You just and hit it hard. My relapses were of the nature that, well, I already messed up. Might as well just go for broke. And, and it wasn't a conscious decision either so much as the fact that if I had a little bit, I was having it all. Yeah. And I tested that too. I tried to, to, I'm just going to have two shots today and that'll be it. And never 
never happened. I always had to have more. Um, so the thing is, too, I, I was making such an ass of myself, making such a fool of myself in my blacked out yet conscious state. I say yeah. conscious in the fact that my body was moving around and not that I was there in any sense of the word. Yeah. But uh, hey, let me just say this is this. I mean, there, there's different patterns in alcoholism, but this is a pretty classic one. OK, where you go through these patterns in two weeks or a month or you put something together. And then when you when you start drinking again, it's like the addict or the alcoholic self wants to catch up all that sober time and do it in one day, one or two days, you know, and you drench yourself. And also the kind of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing also kicks in. I mean, you know, you're a sweet, lovely man, uh, Doug. And, you know, the fact that when you would use, there would be this, you know, big personality shift. Yeah. And, and the shift was, it was not an anger thing for me. I actually have an interesting relationship with anger as it gets into shadow stuff, which is that my, uh, my father was a very, very angry man. He, he had a lot of stress and he had a temper like nobody's business and very young I said I'm not angry I'm not going to do that I'm not going to be that and even in my darkest alcoholism anger was not a thing for me I just completely disowned it suppressed it detached from the shadow stuff there Mm -hmm. so even in my darkest blackouts it was never angry I just would make an ass of myself and you know humiliate myself and so I stopped doing it I stopped going out in public it became I'm going to sit at home by myself and do this so that nobody has to see what a fool I'm being I won't be on the road I won't be risking a public intoxication ticket I'm just going to be at home alone doing this thing and so I I leaned into the bottle Um, my girlfriend broke up with me which hit me very hard because she's still is you know I need Neat lady. I, I cared about her a lot. Uh, it, it really kind of messed me up. And coupled with the fact that then when I finally did manage to graduate, I graduated with the sound recording degree in a time when the industry was being flipped on its head because MP3s and file sharing and Napster and all this kind of stuff. Napster, yeah, all that stuff. Changed the job that I thought I was going to have didn't really exist in the form that I thought I was going to have it, at least in a way that I was able to access at that time. Um, So here I am with this college degree and this alcohol problem, and I found that things were competitive. People didn't want to hire somebody who was a music major for an accounting job when they could get an accounting major to do it. Nobody really cared much about a music degree. was regretful of my choices, was regretful of everything, and I started to question further deeply my, my self-worth from all this other shit that had happened in my life and the things that I had internalized growing up from the other experiences and just, I didn't think I was worth anything or could do anything, and it was a deep, dark depression. I couldn't support myself. I couldn't get a real job. I couldn't stay sober. I worked a series of retail jobs that I couldn't keep because inevitably I would relapse again and screw everything up again, which continued this cycle of self-loathing and just was bad. I um, ended up moving. I, I, I went to two rehabs around this time. I was still living in Austin area then. First an outpatient rehab and then later an inpatient rehab and things were fine. Well, and I would get out and 
not be able to maintain it. I was going to meetings every day for a while. I took the suggestion of 90, I'm age 23, 24 around here, took 90 and 90 very seriously and did my best to keep it up, but couldn't do it. I had a lot of issues with AA because of, first of all, the Protestant kind of fundamentalism. Second of all, this related to my type five thing, this idea that I had to understand God. Uh, I didn't like the idea of powerlessness either, because from my perspective, I, I was already plenty powerless and I needed I don't know, to get some self-power, to get some self-esteem, to, to move that in the other direction and sort of uh, gain some faith in my ability to move things forward. And I had no way to reinforce that when I couldn't make any other area of my life work. A series of people that I dated briefly after kind of confirmed this to me that because I wasn't some sort of typical, stereotypical alpha male type that I was somehow deficient. There was something wrong with me. Further reinforced this belief. Um, couldn't get my shit together. I ended up uh, moving back in with my parents who had since moved to Atlanta while I was at university. That was hard, too, for everybody because there were all the old issues there and those behavior patterns between us all still going strong, the anger, this, the criticisms, the, the again, I, I felt worthless and had it reinforced on a near daily basis. I couldn't pull myself out from and I would try and I would fail and I would relapse and I would kick myself and try and fail and relapse. And for, for a while, for years, I'm in a place with no friends and no one to talk to I didn't reach out to anybody on social media or Facebook because I was so ashamed of what my life had become that I didn't want anybody to see this hole that I had fallen into. And I was just alone. It was, you know, me and my cat <laughs> getting by. Cat. God, I love my cat. <laughs> um, but somewhere inside of me, there was, there was, there was still this desire to do something. I, I, struggled with the idea of hope. Like, what is there to, to hope for? What, what am I going to do with my life when I'm so damn worthless? What do I have to give? What do I have to offer? What people, people talk about millennials, for example, thinking that they're so fucking special. And I kind of had internalized the opposite of that, that I am so fucking not special that there's, you know, why bother? Here you go. I couldn't see a bother. So fortunately, there was some spark somehow still inside of me that wanted to do things, wanted to write, for example, was a huge one. Wanted to, to get out and start a business, wanted to get myself better, wanted to do this. So I leaned into reading self-help books, starting to meditate, reading a lot, a lot, a lot about Buddhism, which I had discovered years before, but, um, you know, leaned into it a lot more. Interestingly, from an integral perspective, now that I look back on it, there was at that time, I had kind of gone through uh, 
a stage evolution in my path out of this. There was, in my exploration of searching for, for God, as AA had prompted me to do, and redefining what religion and spirituality could be, I leaned into an exploration of a lot of New Age stuff and had, in the depths of my addiction, had embraced some of the more magical thinking kind of ideas. Mm -hmm. Doug, did you go to church when you were a kid? Did you have any kind of religious... I um, We went to Sunday school a little bit when I was a kid. My um, parents kind of come from a place where, where my mom is a pretty strong believer. My dad is very orange, very orange, science and reason and rationality and doesn't really talk much about spirituality. So we, like I said, went to Sunday school a little bit, but their thing, which I actually kind of love, is we would go on Sunday family bike rides because my dad said they could appreciate the majesty of God a lot better out in nature than they could sitting in a building. Uh, <laughs> yeah, of course. Really. You know, the, the trick to that is you have to actually <laughs> take the time to appreciate it in that way and think about it as practice while you're out there. But um, anyway, I didn't have a strong religious foundation. I, uh, gosh, I went full-blown atheist by the time I was about 12 and I started leaning into philosophy too. When I was a teenager, I got real into the whole punk rock thing as well. And I was not just, you know, middle fingers up, F everything kind of punk rock, but rather the political, intellectual kind. Uh, I recall clash. I recall this uh, disc I had by a band called Propagandi. And on the CD, it was, it was actually a, a mixed media CD. You could put it in the CD-ROM drive on your computer, and it had just reams of PDF files, information about stuff that was going on with the government and information about uh, PETA, the ethical treatment of animals and vegetarianism and stuff about feminism and just all this educational material about what's going on and what to study and, and kind of opening your eyes to what's happening in the world. I thought it was just fascinating. I am, I was reading Nietzsche. I, uh, I read Ayn Rand a little bit. I actually was really into Ayn Rand for a while too. Um, yeah, that's, that's a whole other interesting interesting story but i think that i think that a lot of people misinterpret ayn rand i think she certainly got some things wrong but i think she got a, th a lot of things right and it's a matter of transcend and include don't throw the baby out with the bathwater with some of that stuff and i'd say that from firsthand experience having read a lot of her work a number of times I uh, definitely have that tendency to want to lean into and verify and explore things for myself, which has been both a blessing and a curse as my life has progressed. <laughs> I don't take anybody's word for anything, which is part of the reason that Buddhism appealed to me so much. I was turned on to Buddhism because from that orange Randian kind of perspective, I wanted to increase my personal capacities in every way I could and maximize my intelligence and my brain power. And I heard that meditation was a way to do that. So I started meditating and through my wanting to improve my meditation practice, inevitably read some Buddhism and found a lot of things appealing about the philosophy, some of which I wouldn't really appreciate, understand, or embrace until later. Interestingly, and, and here's not necessarily a thought related to my recovery, but just a thought nonetheless is that I was raised in, in a way, my culture, my peers, my attitudes that 
we're what we consider green. In other words, everybody's equal and, you know, racism and sexism and all this stuff are terrible and shitty. And that was never even an issue for me. It was open and inclusive and just wonderful, which is a very green perspective. And yet I had not consciously evolved through the stages to green. So I had some very green ideas viewed from a lower stage lens. It's well said. It's well said. Um, <clears throat> I really identify with that, Doug, too. Really got that. What you yeah. said. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I blasted through orange and when I spent 20 something years in green, I had to go back. I got to go back a few stages and learn some of this foundational stuff that I didn't yeah. get. So. Exactly. exactly. So I didn't, you know, I, I went through rational kind of up through college and that's when I was real heavy into the rand. I didn't really get to a green place of evolution until addiction knocked me on my ass and made me see the other side of suffering and what some people kind of go through. You know, I was, I was a white kid growing up in suburbia. I certainly had my suffering, but it's not what some people go through for sure. I didn't struggle with finding food and supporting my family and I began to struggle with, with sustaining myself and keeping myself employed. And I realized that, you know, maybe some of these people who are having trouble supporting themselves and doing, maybe it's not their fault. Maybe there are other circumstances. And I read a lot more about sociology and circumstances and read and read and came to understand other perspectives, having had the experiences of being down and out myself that, opened my eyes in a way and that's continuing to read and studying all these things and I'd make some progress and I'd slip again and I'd make some progress and I'd slip again and I'd make some progress and God, something would happen at the house that I just couldn't handle or some emotion would come up that I just couldn't deal with and this thing took over inside me that I, I didn't consciously make a choice to do it. It's just suddenly I was drunk again and these binges would... Let me mentioned too we're not talking beer here because that wasn't enough for me i would get a couple of bottles of vodka and just destroy them i'd go through you know the the big ones the handles in in a couple of days i'd polish off several of them and uh I, I was on the verge of death it is something of a miracle that i didn't die of acute alcohol poisoning for sure in fact there were plenty of times when I wished that I would, where I would literally start drinking with the intention of never waking up because I couldn't see any way out and I was too chicken shit to take a more direct route. I actually tried to procure a firearm at one point and, you know, thank God I couldn't get my hands on one because I probably wouldn't be here. I, I still don't know how it happened that I am, but um, anyway, here we are. So held on to this, this spark, this wanting to improve it, to change and began in little bits and pieces and then backslides the journey out of it. I God, my mom, my mom's a wonderful, loving, kind person. And you know, like, like everybody there, there are mistakes and there are things there, but she's just a wonderful, loving person every day there. She would say to me, why don't you come out and go for a walk with me? Why don't you come out and go for a walk with me? No, no, no. Maybe some of it for God, probably two years. She kept asking me every day, why don't you come out and go for a walk with me? And one day I finally said, sure. 
So I went out and went for a walk with her. We walked around the block. And daily, I started doing that. And the distance grew. We walked around the block. And then we'd go walk for a mile and eventually two and then four and five. And then I started adding in some weight training and this kind of stuff. And still, I'm on this, you know, I'd go for a while and relapse cycle, but the distance mm -hmm. between the relapses was getting longer, which doesn't mean the relapses were getting any less intense, but I was starting to make some positive changes mm -hmm. in the interim, which, which despite the backslides, it was still an overall. Upward. You were starting to maybe get some hope that things could be different. Yeah. Yeah. And part of that came from in small bits and pieces, finally coming to the terms with the fact that I would never live up to the standards that would make my dad happy that I didn't have to because I could make my own choices in spite of what he said or what he thought. And so I started leaning into writing more and started uh, doing web design and blogging and copywriting and this kind of stuff. Uh, projecting myself out there in, in those kind of ways, putting myself out in the world in very small ways. And I was still very terrified to do it. I have intended to, and had several false starts with um, blogging and weekly blogging for years now. I actually am in the middle of another <laughs> right now, trying to uh, get this personal website started where I send out a post every week. But anyway, the first iteration of that was many years ago. And my mom was inspired by me too, because she had, had a similar kind of experience where her ideas were stupid and it took my encouraging her that no, they're not to lean into some of the stuff. And she said she wanted to start a website. So I taught her how to do that. And we kind of bonded over WordPress and gosh, now she's employed as a web designer full time, which is fantastic. It all started with me uh, teaching her how to blog. And of course, all the continued work she has leaned into and done on her own since then, which goes to show that you're never too old to learn something new, by the way. But um, I continued to lean into the things that would make me happy. We were in Atlanta, which was starting to experience something of a, uh, a boom in film and television production at the time. And it occurred to me one day that, gee, it sure would be fun because I was, of course, struggling with employment like nobody's business. And it got to the point where even getting hired at retail places was hard because you go and you fill out that application. And what happened at your last six jobs? Well, why are there all these holes in your resume? Well, it's hard. It was hard. So I, you know, had to figure out how to make money my own ways. And I did lots of little things to that in the web design, the copywriting, freelance gigs were part of it. But also it occurred to me that maybe I would try and go be an extra in a movie because gee, why the hell not? That would be fun. So in spite of you know, my thinking that that's a stupid thing that would never work, <laughs> I uh, leaned into it and did it anyway. I figured out how to get started and who to talk to. I did a bunch of research and sent in some pictures and you know, a couple of weeks later had my first job and <laughs> they liked me and uh, had some more and found some other casting agencies. And before long, I was working as a film extra four or five days a week and making a, you know, more than I'd make it a retail job. Not, not a great living, but certainly enough um, for the time. And it ballooned from there. I 
I started taking acting classes once a week, which was a phenomenal experience, which I have uh, talked about a little bit here before and how that became not only a wonderful social group, but a form of shadow practice and was wonderful. And I love acting. It's so, recovery. It's amazing. Um, wanting to, you know, learning how to take perspectives was an important part of that. And in wanting to be an actor, I had to continue to take care of my body too. You got, you got to look good. The camera matters. It's looking right at you. So I leaned into that physical practice. I leaned into this meditation and shadow work. I started getting a different kind of support. I had some hope that there was some possibility to do something that I cared about and make a difference in people's lives. I was exploring a creative practice. I was with people who didn't know anything about my past and therefore weren't judging me about it, which allowed me to work outside of the shame that I brought with me everywhere else. And, you know, there were still, uh, there was still a relapse or two here and there in that period, but again, less and less. Well, at some point, uh, as you know, my acting career, grew too a little bit. I had some very cool stand-in roles and photo double roles and, and just was starting to feel a lot better about myself. And at some point I said, I think I'm okay now. And then I hit the 90 day mark, which I had never, mm. it had been nearly a decade since I had been that long. I hit the 90 day point and I said, all right, I, I think I'm okay now. So, Hey world, I'm back. And I, uh, I went and put my picture on a dating website. <laughs> Wasn't really looking for anybody. It was just kind of an informal announcement that I feel better. To yourself, too, that you were ready so my, to put yourself back yeah. in the world. It's, back really, in life. it's really what it was. Uh -huh. And, you know, a couple of months later, I got a message from the wonderful woman who would become my wife. <laughs> and and uh, things things continued to improve from there. You know, it... Um, it's been over four years now since I've been sober and the daily practice is all part of that. It took all those pieces though. And it took them coming together. It took finding hope. It took having the courage to lean into what I thought, what I cared about in spite of what I feared other people, even people who had very strong influence in my life would think about me. It involved thinking enough of myself to, take some steps away from that shame, which started to reinforce my confidence that I could do it and start to rebuild some self-worth. You know, the funny thing happens when you start exercising regularly and sticking with your workouts and lifting a little more weight each time, in addition to the immediate physiological and neurochemical effects, you start to get some self-esteem too. And you see, yeah. that, look what I have done. If I push myself hard here, why can't I push myself hard in other areas of my life and it starts infecting in a good way other aspects? And yeah. that's exactly the way I lean into it is when I get down and do my exercise, I give it everything that I have because that's the practice. I mean, sure, I'm, I'm taking care of my physical body too, but the practice is pushing with everything that I'm capable of giving that day and training myself to do that has made all the difference in the world. All of that coming together and, and continuing to do it and continuing to work on it and continuing to grow and to learn because things starting to fall into place sure as hell wasn't the end of the journey. I still am doing not only the, the daily practices, but reading and growing and learning. And the one that has made... The biggest difference, too, is 
exposing myself to other people. You know, I put myself on the dating website. I exposed myself to the camera when I was acting. I exposed myself to the world, granted via a pen name, but through my writing when I started publishing books. It was a risk, John, when I wrote you that first letter because I had been, and somehow this didn't make it into the story I just told, but discovered uh, binaural and brainwave entrainment way back a long time ago too and cared about it a lot. Had been working with it on and off, not obviously as a structured regular practice, but for years and doing my own for years and always hoped that would be part of my business. So in, in writing to you about all that was a risk too. I cared about it. So uh, doing the podcast and talking to you guys each week, exposing some very personal things, sharing them with our podcast audience, all that involves a spotlight coming in. But I think that it is through exposing our shit to the light Mm-hmm. that we really start to heal. Yeah, yeah. And so I... You know, and, and alcoholism and, and depression, you know, it's just more of this turning in, turning in disconnection, 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 mm-hmm. and recovery uh, and spirituality mm-hmm. in life is about, it's about expansion and, mm-hmm. and connecting to more and more, you know. I've got this uh, uh, piece of art on my wall. I got it in uh, 19... 96 I was in Cairo and I got this uh, it's a it's a it's a, a papyrus print of of a golden beetle a golden scarab and in the in that Egyptian mythology the golden scarab rises out of literally the shit <laughs> they, they it's it's a it's a dung beetle a, literally a dung beetle that image came to my mind just at this very this very last point you made Doug that we're all uh, dung beetles. That that that, and and it's possible for that to be a transformative image. It's literally on the walkway into my home. So every time that I walk in, there's there's a there's a remembrance of who it is I have been, where I've come from, but also where it is that I'm headed. And it's unbelievably gorgeous and inspiring. <laughs> Well, yeah, and Doug, thanks for reaching out and writing that letter. In fact, I got to go back to my emails and read that original letter. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but I just yeah. remember being really impressed, and I'm like, God, uh, this guy is uh, yeah. is deep, and yeah. uh, it's, it's been it's been lovely, man. You've uh, yeah. you know, it's like I've been thinking about this podcast for a number of years, and it's like mm-hmm. I took courses on <laughs> how to do a podcast, mm-hmm. online courses, and I'm still like, what? And with Doug, we decided we were going to do it. Like two weeks later, man, we're on the air. You know, it's like, wow. That's exactly right. And, um, exactly right. you know, yeah. kept on finding different uh, areas you were skilled in and just producing the Stealing Flow series and all the stuff that's just coming out of you. And like Pam said, where the hell do you find this guy? <laughs> uh, dumb luck, yeah. you know. Well, but isn't that something, you know? And it's like uh, one of the, the things I made in, in my book. And, and Doug, thank you so much. You're such a precious soul. That was just mm-hmm. so amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the, this damn addiction stuff, you know, it's not the, it's not the worst of us, you know, that succumb to this. Often it's the best and the brightest and the most sensitive. And it's such a goddamn tragedy. Yeah. You know, what if you had drunk one of those nights and never woke up, you know? I mean, my God, Doug, you know? You wouldn't be here with us. You wouldn't be here with your wife and your child and, and all the people you're helping in the world now. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right with you, John. You. Right with you. Just keep showing up. And it's uncomfortable sometimes. 
it's scary oh, as shit sometimes, yeah. but you know, you, I, I have made a practice of just showing up and continuing to do so, especially when it scares me because I have learned that that's where the growth lies. My quietness listening to your story to Doug is born out of complete attention to every, every single thing that you said. I just want to give word to it, which is I resonate so powerfully with each step of the way. And I think any addict who really does know addiction from the inside to alcohol or any other drug will, will absolutely bridge over to your experience. You've named it, which is really nuanced truthfulness. I really bow to that, Doug. I, the entire time you've been speaking, I've been right with you and this really honor um, all that you've shared today. This is, this is sacred. This is sacred. Thank you for that, Bob. Um, I just, I feel so blessed to be here with you guys every time we do this. I mean, I, I hope that this is beneficial to a lot of people, but it sure is how beneficial to me to, to show up and have these talks with you guys. Absolutely. feel exactly the same way as you, Doug. Absolutely. Uh, Doug, uh, I, I say this almost every week, but John, earlier uh, in a previous segment that we recorded, um, it would be segment 23, about halfway through, you were, you were waxing eloquently, and I just sat there, I just had this huge beam. I have so much love for you, so much respect and admiration, and you're just like this brilliant, glowing diamond, and I just... I, I think how blessed can we be, the three of us, to be able to meet like this and join each other this way. It's like a huge part of my recovery practice. We talked about integral recovery practice. Well, this is here yeah. right now. Gosh darn it. <laughs> okay. Hey, Doug, deep bow, brother. Thank you so much for just opening your heart and your life. And um, uh, I can't thank you enough. And I'm just moved. And... Um, so here we are, folks. Come on back. I will be here uh, same same time next week. And go back. And if you've missed the earlier ones, because sometimes we make references to the, the model that's all covered. And we'll just keep uncovering and uncovering and uncovering and going deeper and seeing what we find. So we love you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, don't be, you know, hey, we all fall on our faces every day. Let's just get back up and keep keep the journey going and, and support each other and, and do this together. So thank you so much. God bless. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit IntegralRecoveryInstitute.com slash iAwake for the best meditation tracks to support your daily recovery practice. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit us on iTunes and hit subscribe for a new episode every Friday. While you're there, you can help others share the journey and the joy of integral recovery by leaving your five-star rating and a quick review. We're grateful for your support, and we'll see you next time on the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast.